Hi everyone and welcome to this latest edition of the Animal Chat with Harry and Matt podcast. Now, let me ask you a question, just between you and me. Would you like to own an exotic pet? Maybe a tiger or a lion or a bear or a cobra? Because it's not really something that you can do unless you're a Saudi prince or an African warlord or, you know, pretty much anyone in the United States. Because the USA leads the world in exotic pet ownership, along with leading the world in other cool things like military spending, food portion size and incarceration rates. But when you realise that there's around 10,000 privately owned tigers in the United States, compared with the 4,000 or so that are actually left in the wild in the rest of the world, you start to understand the scale of the problem. The subculture of exotic pet ownership is something that many people will have found out more recently thanks to the new Netflix documentary series The Tiger King about the roadside zoo owner Joe Exotic and the increasingly bizarre cast of characters that inhabit this world. Someone that knows more about this world than almost anyone is Matt and I's guest on this Animal Chat podcast. We were incredibly lucky and thrilled to be able to speak with Tim Harrison. Now, for those of you that don't know him, Tim Harrison is a retired police officer, firefighter and paramedic for the city of Oakwood in Ohio and was a central focus for the multi-award winning 2011 documentary, The Elephant in the Living Room. Now, growing up, Tim had a great love of animals and openly talks about the period in his life where he himself owned lions and tigers and wolves and snakes in his own home. But after becoming a police officer, he began to see and experience the negative side of the exotic pet subculture, where those animals were escaping or being turned loose into cities and suburbs of Ohio and across the United States. Throughout his career, he was called to rescue, relocate and capture literally hundreds of snakes, lions, bears, tigers and alligators. And today, Tim is the director of Outreach for Animals, an organisation whose mission is to educate young people to respect wildlife in its natural habitat. And he's regarded as one of the world's most well-known and well-respected advocates for the protection of dangerous captive animals. In this podcast, we start by talking about the wildlife trade as it relates to the coronavirus. And from there, Tim talks about his years on the front line of dealing with the wildlife trade and the mayhem of the exotic pet subculture of the United States. And he has so many incredible stories to tell, each one almost more unbelievable than the last. We, of course, talk about The Elephant in the Living Room, which was the first film to really shine a spotlight on the controversial world of raising some of the most dangerous animals as household pets, and some of the surprisingly sympathetic characters that were part of the story. We also touch on the Zanesville incident, where a man named Terry Thompson let loose his 56 animals, including 18 tigers, before killing himself in 2011, something that was to become a catalyst to address this issue in the United States. We, of course, discuss Joe Exotic and the Tiger King, but we also find out that the world of exotic pet ownership is even crazier than the series suggests when Tim tells us about the markets and auctions where anything, literally anything, can be bought and sold. 
And then Tim talks about his incredible and tireless advocacy work, not only educating the wider public, but working directly with the people who own these pets and getting them to see that maybe there's a better way to care about these animals than having them in your living room. So here we go. Enjoy this animal chat with Tim Harrison. It's a worldwide thing, too, phenomena, so we're all working together. I'd like to see if the Chinese can help out a little bit more, because I've been to China a few times. I know what goes on over there. <laughs> so I know, especially the wildlife industry and what's going on over there, that sometimes things are kept hushed. But if we could get this, uh, get all the people work together, it's, it's something that's going to be a phenomenon where we're all going to walk away from this uh, a little smarter and a little bit healthier. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those areas that I work on through my organization, which is the illegal wildlife trade. And it's something I'm sure you can understand. You know, it's something that you're definitely in the United States, one of the biggest importers of wildlife, either legal or illegal. And obviously, we all know that the coronavirus is causing havoc at the moment. And it started out as a result of wildlife trade, mostly from from food markets. But from your perspective, we talk about China as being the epicenter for this, and we're seeing these kinds of markets, uh, countries like China and Vietnam and hopefully Indonesia shortly going to be implementing a ban on this kind of trade. And obviously that's internally, that's in their country, uh, but that's clearly going to affect international trade as well. So how do you see that impacting your work? Because obviously you're dealing with the people who are importing and breeding wildlife over there. You know, one thing I can tell you is you, you, you saw a little bit of, you saw the uh, some of the stuff I did before the documentary, The Elephant in the Living Room. I did some undercover pieces with uh, showing the exotic, dangerous wild exotic animal auctions in the United States. Those yeah. auctions have been yeah. shut down almost because the uh, the people that are breeding here in the United States also, they always have to get the fresh stuff. Uh, it's weird because I'm starting to hear this underground stuff, that, you know, the most rarest animals, what the Americans want, the, the collectors. So right now, the pangolin, since it's the most rarest out there and the most poached, uh, it just, it's starting to make the news. Sadly, sometimes when articles come out, like in Smithsonian Magazine or something, they're talking about the pangolins, the most endangered. It actually sparks in the United States of America where people want to get one. You know, that's what happened with the sloths. Here we had to start closing sloth places down and over in Oregon and places like that, where they were bringing sloths up from, uh, uh, from Costa Rica and places like that. I was down in Costa Rica helping to rescue them down there. And, and it's ridiculous because whatever you see on TV or whatever you see in the media will be immediately for sale the very next month, either on the internet, or auctions or somewhere. And it's really sad because it's a monkey see, monkey do kind of thing. And people tell me right to my face, why did you buy this King Cobra? Oh, because I saw Steve Irwin on TV. And they'll tell you directly to your face. Or why did you get this tiger? I saw Jack Hanna on David Letterman's show. And it's and that's kind of how I got started too. Now Jack Hanna was one of my heroes growing up, and I wanted to imitate that. I wanted to, I thought that was the right way to go, and it wasn't. It doesn't do anything for conservation. It actually does. It does opposite of conservation. All those years ago, when uh, uh, the elephant in the living room came out, something that really appealed to me about your approach, which was 
the empathy that you build with the people that have these animals. When I say empathy, what I mean is that you were once an owner of uh, exotic animals yourself, weren't you? And that kind of gives you that personal approach to understand why people get them and trying to make the best of the situation that they have with this animal when they've got it before a disaster happens. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things too, because when I was growing up, there was no sanctuaries. There were no real rescue facilities at that time. They're mostly breeders, sellers, pay to play guys, get your picture taken with these cats or animals. There was nobody out there. A lot, there was very few, if any, that was do the right thing. So I would rescue these animals and I'd keep them. I'd have tiger, I'd have a lion in the house, I'd bears, I'd wolves, and I would care for them until I found what I thought was an AZA-credited zoo that would take them. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an addict, and I'll tell people, no question about it, I, you'd never see me play with tiger cubs. You'll never see me play with a bear cub, because I think I can do it better than anybody else. It's in my brain that I think I can do this. I can take care of this animal, because I had such success when I was younger, but then this is what changed my whole world. First, I went to Africa, and I saw lions in, in, in the wild. I saw giraffes running and I'm thinking, oh, I just took a giraffe out of somebody's garage in Troy, Ohio. I'm thinking that doesn't look like the giraffe I saw in the garage. And that sure doesn't look like the lion I saw in the backyard I just took out of. These are wild animals. And then I had a situation where I was actually doing live shows. I was on national TV. I would take whatever I rescued, a tiger cub or a python on TV, or I'd go do live shows for a major group that was sponsoring us. I went in, I would take a python, big pythons in. Or there's a young man named Ted Drees. He was a construction worker. He'd come into every one of my programs that I did at these open, open live shows, and he'd help me hold the snake. Well, he wanted to be like me, just like I wanted to be like Jack Hanna. I told him never to, never to mess with his python uh, by himself. He ended up being constricted to death by his python, imitating what I was doing. And that woke me up like you guys wouldn't believe. Like, it was like a punch right in the solar plexus. I said, I can't do this anymore because people are imitating me and actually dying. And I, then I realized when I started reaching out and looking around and getting more involved, asking questions to the people, I, I used to just go get the animal from the people. I didn't sit and discuss why they got it or anything like that. I just helped them out because I knew I understand. I was in the same boat as they were. And when I end up, start asking questions, you know, wait, why did you get this? Oh, I got it because of the Gator Boys on TV, or I got it because of this. It was almost 99% of the time, they got it because they were imitating somebody else that they saw, they wanted to be like. And I noticed when I went to other countries, people weren't imitating what they saw on TV as much because they have more respect for their wildlife. Just like the emergency room doctor in the elephant in the living room. He, uh, you know, Dr. Paholka said, you know, six months in Africa, six months in the United States, emergency room doctor, we don't see what he sees in the United States in Africa where people get bit by cobras. He, he had numerous venomous snake bites at the, in Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio, of all places. Big cat attacks. He said a brilliant statement, guys. He said, you know, when you get scratched by your house cat in the United oh. States of America, or if it's by, you know, scratches a neighbor or bites a neighbor, you got three inches of paperwork that you have to go <laughs> through through the combined health district. That cat has to be quarantined and it has to have rabies shots. If you get scratched by a cougar or a tiger, which we've had, or attacked, there's no no box to check, no way to keep statistics, no nothing. It's just amazing. If you remember in the film, the sheriff that had the two African lions on the interstate attacking cars, he makes yeah. the most perfect comment. If you guys remember, he goes, you've got to have tags licensed for your dog, but you have to have nothing for a lion. You know, we don't even know where these animals are at. <laughs> Do you think that the federal government system where you've got different states you know, with different laws, I, I believe there's 
four states now that have no laws, another 10 that you have to get a permit in. Do, does that make things worse as well, Tim, in terms of on, ter- on top of the whole wanting to replicate somebody they see on TV, does the fact that there is no consistent law across the whole of the United States make things a little trickier? It makes it very tricky. Perfect example, the state of Ohio after the Zanesville massacre, where Terry mm-hmm. Thompson turned 56 of the most deadliest creatures loose on the city of Zane. It was the largest terrorist event in the world's history where somebody used dangerous, wild, and exotic animals. And think about that, 38 big cats. Oh my gosh, grizzly bears, black bears, wolves, baboons, all turned loose on the city of Zanesville. And he said, Terry Thompson said, when he was getting sentenced for selling illegal guns, he said right in the courtroom, he told everybody, he said, hey, judge, if you, you put me in prison, when I got out, I'm going to turn my effing animals loose and I'm going to blow my effing brains out. And what did he do? It wasn't no freak accident. We knew it was happening. So we were fighting to stop that. We actually had a law passed, an executive order, that was supposed to be signed over by the new governor coming in. But when the new governor came in, he dropped the executive order. And just months later, we had the Zanesville massacre. We could have took those animals off that property if that executive order was signed. Laws do work. Take it from a police officer. I'm a police officer, firefighter, paramedic, retired. I teach for Homeland Security and FEMA now. And laws do work because I'm going to surround it off for you. About 80% of the population will do what the law says. There's always that 20% questionable what they're going to do. There's only 1% that's going to bring a cobra into their home. All these innocent people, as you see in the film, like, like Terry Brumfield, he's an innocent guy. He's buying lions because that's because you can get them. He, like he says, you, you put a lion cub in somebody's hand, you're going to take that home with you. It's like addiction. You're going to put that lion cub in your hand. You're going to take it home. So he goes to one of these auctions, and that's how it works. Nobody gives him any information, and nobody takes the animal back. That's where my organization, Outreach for Animals, comes in. We're police officers, firefighters, paramedics, emergency room doctors, pediatric physicians, because they see all the injuries, lawyers, veterinarians, and animal control people all got together to try to teach proper behavior around wildlife, because it sure as hell ain't being shown on national TV shows. And it sure as heck ain't being taught in a lot of a lot of institutions. Yeah, I completely understand. It's in, it's incredible what you say. I mean, Terry was such a sympathetic character. You know, you read about it on paper and you understand the problems that are caused having these kinds of animals. But when you see him and you see your interaction and your relationship and how it grows and the support you're offering him, he's he's incredibly sympathetic. And obviously your background as well and everything he was saying about you know, you see these animals, you have an animal in your hand, and it's it's very easy to have that feeling. I mean, I've worked in animal welfare for a long time now, and, and last year I was doing some investigations, and I went to a dolphinarium, and I was looking at the way the animals were being treated and assessing it and taking some undercover footage. But while I was there, there was a part of my head that was watching these guys and these caretakers, these dolphin keepers, and... Uh, watching the interaction that they had with these animals and the proximity that they they had um, and the relationship that they had. And what a privilege that was to be so close to those animals and earn their trust. And whilst I was doing all this and, and doing the assessment to try and show the, the kinds of problems associated with these places, there was there was still that voice in my head saying, look how cool that is. Look at how close they are to these animals. And that's such a... Um, a difficult and contradictive thing to come to terms with. Absolutely. That's, that is what it's, it's like an addiction. Like I told you before, I am an addict too, because I, I still at nights I sit in bed and dream of the times I had 12 wolves and I used oh. to go out and sleep on the, we had wood chip piles for them. I go and sleep in the sun with them and they'd lay on me. 
You know, it's a bit, they're very endearing animals, but they're IEDs. They're still like time bombs. You don't know what's going to trigger that instinct that they have naturally. It could be the cologne you wore. It could be your body language that day. It could be anything. These animals don't directly love you. They seem to take you in and you're part of them. But you've got to understand, just like Terry found out, where uh, Lambert actually turns on Terry. Lambert never turned on Terry. Lambert went lion. He turned into a male lion, four years old, had cubs, and escaped. So he's ready to flex his muscles. When we would come there to film or help clean up, Lambert would allow us to do anything, no, no botherment, no growl, no snarl, nothing. But when Terry, you get that sexual maturity, he looked at Terry as the leader of the pride. And Terry was the leader of the pride. He looked at him and he started, his pupils started blowing out. You could see that in the extras. It's scary. And I told him two weeks before he was almost killed. He was almost killed by Lambert. I told him before, I said, listen, man, don't go in there with him anymore. Don't go too close to that cage. It's his turn to take over the pride. Just like pick up a book and read it. I'll tell you that. So Lambert went after him and you can hear him on the extra set. Yeah, yesterday he was my best friend. Today he's trying to kill me. That's how quick it is. And you don't know when that time's coming. They are time bombs. And they will go off. And it's not their fault. That's their natural instinct. And it's not a freak accident like with chimpanzees tearing people's faces off and male's genitalia, men, men's genitalia. I was on a, a national TV show where they got the four fa expert faces and they're interviewing. The CNN was talking and they were all talking about it was a freak accident that this uh, chimp ripped this woman's face off in Connecticut and tore her fingers off. And they asked me, Tim, you're going to say something. I said, absolutely. But hold on a second. Why are we here? We're not chimp experts. I've rescued 11 chimps in the last few years out of people's homes and escaped. Yeah, but I'm not a chimp expert. Why didn't somebody ask Jane Goodall? Why isn't she here to explain this? And I hold her book up onto the screen and that's her book. And I said, let me read something to you. And I read a couple of sentences that chimps tear each other's faces off in the wild and they rip off the male genitalia. I said, is that a freak accident or is that written down as granite right here? That that's what they do. I said, it's only a freak accident when some human brings them into their home and they do exactly what they're supposed to do. Wow. Do you think, yes. is there a reason why certain states aren't enforcing these laws, Tim, in terms of like Ohio has and, and other states in terms of where we're trying to legislate, you're trying to stop the ownership of, of big cats? Because here in the UK, we, we've got laws like that where you're not allowed to own big cats and, and, and primates. Is there a reason why these individual states aren't enacting those laws? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little different in the United States because uh, Ohio was the biggest offender. We were the wild, wild west. We were the big time offenders. Uh, we had no laws, period. We, had, we have five AZA zoos in our state. We have more than any other state has. We had so many roadside zoos, all the breeders, and we had the biggest auctions, as you saw. It all happened as, now, now since we passed the laws. All they did was move all that nightmare into Texas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Now we're fighting them there. They consider having an animal like a tiger is like owning a gun or uh, like it's a right to own this. So when I speak at Congress and I skid up and do congressional briefings, oh. I said, I don't see anything in the Constitution or anything that says something about, you know, any animal that you have. A right. Wait a minute. It says we have the right to uh, bear arms. I think that's the only time yeah. an animal is mentioned. Right. And it says yeah. and everybody laughs because it's not an animal. Right. I told them there's nothing in there. that says we have a right to own a tiger. I said, you can, you know, you can't have TNT in downtown in any town in the United States of America. You can't have dynamite, but you can have a tiger, a walking thinking IED or a cobra with no anti-venom in your, in, in your state or tri-state area. It's one of those craziness that the people have a mindset of liberty 
the United States of America. Yeah. You're taking my rights away. I should be able to do whatever I want to do. Blah blah blah. Doesn't make any difference. But you're absolutely yeah. right. We need national laws to take care of this because when you have more tigers in the state of Texas than there is left in the wild in India and Nepal, there's a problem there. And yeah. with these tigers, I know you guys probably know this already, are what we call American tigers. They are mixtures of Siberian, Bengal, and whatever else got mixed in there. They're not pure. They're never going back in the wild. There's no conservation value for these animals. And they are American tigers, and we need to stop the breeding and stop the selling of them and take care of the ones we have right now. But they're not going anywhere. How do you, obviously, the law and the enforcement of law is hugely important, and you can't do anything without that being in place. You, you need that framework and that backup. But when you're addressing what, what you're talking about there, which is this feeling of right in the United States, that it's my constitutional right, whether the law states that I should or I shouldn't, this has now been part of American culture yes. and the right to own these animals. But like you said, there's, there's roadside zoos. And so if, if the law says that there can't be roadside zoos, well, then people are just going to keep them in their backyards and, and they're going to be hidden. And, and the United States is a big place. So... How do you change the attitudes of the people? Because obviously having a law in place means that you can enforce it and you can prosecute them when you find them. But what you want to do is change people's mindsets that, so that that doesn't even become a thing anymore. That they're, they're not even thinking that they should have the right. The, the, the right of the animal and the needs of the animal is more important than the fact that they just want to have a tiger in their backyard. So how do you address that? Well, you're asking the right person because that's what my organization is. We are there to teach proper behavior around wildlife. And we've been very successful with helping with the lawyers that were working with the orcas. I'm very proud of the United States within the last 10-year period, especially since our film came out. We have used our film and all these lawyers and all these other groups have used our movie to change people's minds, which I'm so yeah. blessed that I did it now. But when it comes down to it, think about with the orcas. In my lifetime, I never thought ever that SeaWorld and places like that would never be allowed to catch them from the wild anymore or breed them in captivity. You know, you guys are younger guys, but I never thought in my lifetime I would see that. I helped with that. Our group helped with that. Then we got Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey Circus. My thing was, this is how we changed their attitude, is by going in, people were already changing. We were already discussing. We were putting the groups were out talking Instead of protesting violently like we used to in the old days, you know, yell at people and tell them they're idiots going in here. No, we have a new style, just like you see me on. That's how I've always been. What you see on that film is exactly how I am. The only way you're going to win on this battle is you could get the people that were actually in it to understand what they've done is not good for them or the animal. I call it get them in baptism in reality is what I call it. When they start realizing that animal is not safe for them or anything else, they're starting looking for help. I come in, I understand. I even tell them, you just got baptized in reality. That's what I'm here for. I've been there, brother. When it comes down to wanting to change people's minds, like with Ringling Brothers, I did a, a congressional speaking there where I told them, I said, you can bring the circuses. And the guys, they lean forward, right? Oh, yeah. All you need to do is have your own emergency response teams. You need to have somebody there, two veterinarians at all times on a team with dart rifles. You have to have trained people with 50 caliber rifles. Each circus that comes through has to have at least a team of 12 emergency response teams. They can't do that. It costs them money. They can't protect. 
So it, all the hooking with the hooks was great, telling the stories of hooking the elephants. It's horrible. Then he started thinking, when I go speak to a mayor or city council, which I did in many cities across the country, did you guys read your contract with Ringling Brothers? It says it's your people, your officers are supposed to respond. They don't have anybody. I had one mayor once say, well, the circuses have trained individuals. I said, have you been to the circus? Yeah. And I said, do you think any of those clowns walking around there are trained? I said, these, are the, these, these people can barely tie their shoes. And I said, you have no trained people there. They're expecting your first responders to take care of it. When they found that out, they flipped out. Every town started stopping circuses coming because of that. And that's how you do it. I am a huge, huge advocate for animals. I want these animals never to be harmed, never to be exploited, never to be drug out and made to dance for us. That's barbaric. And I think the people, at least in the United States, I know you guys are way ahead of us. The people in the United States is like going, hey, hey, we're catching up with you guys. We're evolving. And I learned from college kids, college students, is that the world has changed because now they just don't say, if somebody from Ringling Brothers or from Disney that owns Ringling Brothers would say to them, this is good educational entertainment. They go, oh, hell no. Click, 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 click. They start investigating and they start finding out and they start listening to guys like you guys are out there fighting a fight. Everybody that's out there fighting a fight they get to these spots, they're going to go to this podcast and they're going to go, wow, oh my gosh, that's not what's right. They are hooking the elephants. And it's changing because we learned a valuable lesson with the elephant in the living room. We left it one year and eight months of what happened to me, one year and eight months of Terry, who owned two African lions and everything that went between what we ran into both of us. But we left in the electrocution of, of Lambert, which we battled over quite a bit because we knew a lot of people aren't going to watch that because it was too intense. But then we looked at each other and Mike, who Mike Weber, who did the, the director and who did that with his production company, he did, he's like Lionsgate movies and you know, all those big, big movies, he's a movie guy. This is his first documentary. He goes, Tim, we gotta leave it in. I agreed, leave it in, leave everything in because this is gonna change the world and what people think. And I'm glad we did, you know, it's emotional. <laughs> Sorry guys. Brings back, brings back memories, but uh, it needed to be done. <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a funny funny but sad part, when it was on Netflix, it went for movie theaters. It was in movie houses across the country, 80 different regals and raves, and it's at Man Shiny's Theater and on Broadway and everywhere else. It, it, it was good, but when it hit Netflix, I couldn't go to the airport and fly to a disaster or help anybody because people in the, th in the airports would recognize me. And I'd have people come up and hit me on the arm women or men punch me a little bit in the chest and then give me a hug because it was that emotional yeah it was a really it's a really powerful moment that tim and i'm really glad you you left that in because i remember yeah. what it what it said to me was that's the reality of owning these animals that yes like you say a lot of people see them you you watch a lot of documentaries and, and you see the well if we're talking about orcas you know the displays and you know all the the sort of the control that some people has and yeah. that some people have and that connection with the animal but the reality is also is, is that side of it that when disasters happen these are animals and their lives and, and it that emotion you felt i felt it when i watched that as well um yeah. that's the reality of the journey these animals sometimes go on be it the fault of the owner or in some cases not the fault it's a really it's a really that's the whole journey of these lives yeah i was going to say exactly the same thing it's like you can't 
you can't tell that story and sugarcoat it. You're trying to tell all sides of it. And obviously, you do want to and have to understand the motivation of the people looking after these animals. But if you only show one part of it, or you fail to show the horror of it, the awfulness, the emotion, the parts that rip your heart out and make you question everything, well, then then you're just doing a disservice to the animals that are going to go and suffer as a result of you and, and your choice. And so it was really brave to keep it in, but it was so important to do it as well. It was it was a really powerful moment. Yeah, yeah I think it worked yeah. really well too because Mike's a fantastic director. He put it. He he just was a beautiful artist, and it was put in put in so smoothly too because people either loved or hated Terry when they watched the yeah. film. By the end of the film, they had a lot of good emotions about him. But Lambert was part of what you're watching. It wasn't just going to a slaughterhouse and seeing cows being slaughtered and people turn off the TV. The people who are watching this film, I've had people tell me so many, especially critics, we had the highest rated film for 2012 when it came out, critics-wise. And it was so funny, it was and sadly funny, but people would look at it and go, hmm. you know, I wanted to see, I, I needed to see what happened to Lambert. I needed to see Terry's emotions. You hmm. know, when he leaned over, if you watch it on the big screen, you'll see t- Terry's tears drop on the Lambert while he's laying there and had all that mud and everything, you know, yeah. and the dirt. And it's just like, it's a, it's a killer. And for me, I was out catching another lion at that time. That's why they, he called me up. And it was, it was a nice lion. He was, he was below the age of four, so he's a big, goofy, goofy puppy kind of lion. People think, oh, Tim, you're Dr. Doolittle, right? No, no, he still, he thinks he's, he still thinks he's goofy, right? So you can, you, can make, you can get him in there. That's why these guys get away with that on TV shows, you know, loving up the lion and all that stuff, right? But wait till he gets about six or so, and he, you know, gets sexually mature or over four and Sometimes he's going to take a swat at you after that. And it's going to be. And if anybody ever tells you guys too, from this point on, when you're doing podcasts, you interview anybody that works with animals and they go, ah, you know, I, these lions are my buddies or these, I've, I've slept with lions. I've slept with tigers. I've done everything. Let me tell you something. Somebody tells you they don't, they didn't have a, something happened to them. that scared the crap out of them working with a dangerous animal. That's cobras or anything. They're lying to you. But I keep hearing them on TV. These other clowns that get on TVs. Oh, I'm not scared of anything. Well, then you ain't, you're lying to the public because it takes one time, one time when a lion reaches over and grabs you by the neck and he may be playing, but you're going to have chill go down your spine. You're going to realize this ain't a dog. You know, I lost respect for this animal. The respect got brought back real fast. And that's why a lot of people, you know, they, they always want to buy a tiger cup, right? They want to get them a tiger. Everybody wants to buy a tiger cup, but nobody wants a tiger. That's why they end up in the United States of America. And this is where we get the broken animals, where you get a, a beautiful tiger or a bear. Bears and tigers are the worst lions sometimes. But they'll take those tiger. It'll get to a point where they used to sleep with their kids and play with them in their house and everything else. They get past three or four, too big to be in the house. All of a sudden, they, they growl or show their teeth or act like a lion or act like a tiger. They shove them out into a corn crib. You guys probably don't know what a corn crib is. But it's a, a 20 foot by 20 foot thing. They just dump corn in. It's like a it's like a fenced in nothing. And they put corn in it and they just sit there and walk in a circle for the rest of their lives. And they're broken animals. And I can see it in their eyes. I can't read an animal's mind, but you can see it in their eyes. Why did you put me in here? What does Terry say in the movie? Why'd you put me in here for? You know, he talks about Lambert. Lambert looks at me and goes, why'd you put me? He went through the same thing. He had to put Lambert out in the cage. He couldn't stay in the house no more. That's a broken animal. And the most dangerous creature on this planet is an animal that knows a human's limitations. When they know that you're not as strong as they are or anything else, that's why people get killed. 
and get seriously injured working with these animals. When you lose that respect and that animal knows your limitations, it's a dangerous situation. Yeah, for sure. Just sleeping with an animal doesn't mean that it's not uh, it's not going to kill you. My my wife will attest to that. There's there's many times she's wanted to kill me and and, and we sleep together. Yeah, that's right. It's a perfect example right there. And there's, there's times I think I'd rather take chances with the tiger. But there you go. Yeah, yeah. I would say the same thing too, but my wife's sitting upstairs. <laughs> my, my wife's in the other room, so I I think I'm safe for a few weeks until until she hears this. There you go. There you go. So how um, I really wanted to hear briefly, Tim, what you thought about this new Netflix documentary, Joe Exotic, because I know you've shared something online about it that's yeah. coming out. I mean, going back to what you said before about the impact that whether it's, you know, the people that go on talk shows, you know, showing tigers or showing alligators or whatever. What concerns do you have about this new documentary that's out on Netflix? You know, uh, I was a, I, the guy that was doing it, Eric Good, he... Um, he was involved with some individuals that I knew down in Florida. They're, they're, they're being highlighted on there, Carol Baskin and Howard Baskin, who I've worked with for years and respect. Uh, and then I've dealt with Crazy Joe Exotic for I don't know how many years now. And we've gone face to face. And I'll tell you one quick story with Crazy Joe. When he was in the state of Ohio, they brought him in. All the breeders and all the money brought him in to be the oh. spokesperson for the animal industry, the Dangerous Wild Exotic Animal Street Auctioning. And he came in with his sheriff's uniform on. He calls himself a sheriff. He's a sheriff of his own little compound. That's what yeah, he is. Yeah. But he comes with a badge on, a gun on, and all this stuff. He comes in there, and we're being interviewed by a news news group there. And this lovely young lady standing between us interviewing us. And she starts talking to me, and she goes, uh, Tim, she goes, uh, you're like, this is back when uh, I don't know, one of the Batman movies came out with the with the Joker was in it, the, the Joker, the Heath Ledger Joker was in it. So she's, yeah. she's saying to me, she goes, Tim, you're like Batman coming in here trying to save these animals. You're in there just fighting all these crazies and you're coming to do this. And I said, well, yeah, I'm trying to do the best I can. Joe puts his face in front of the camera and sticks his tongue out and goes, if he's Batman, then I'm the Joker. And he goes, like that. <laughs> then he looks at me and he goes, you ever come on my property? He said, I'll put a cap in your ass. And I said, uh, Joe, what makes you think I'm like, I won't shoot you. I'm a police officer. What makes you think I'm going to shoot you? He rips his shirt open. And he has bullet tattoos on his body with blood running down. He goes, I've already been shot. And you know what I said? I said, well, those are just targets then. <laughs> <laughs> he and I had a love-hate relationship for years. He would call me and talk to me for hours, wanting to be a better person. And I said, the only way we can work together, Joe, is if you quit killing tiger cubs. And I knew he was doing it. Everybody else was knowing it. Now we know it for sure now. But uh, back then, he was, he, he was like, the king. He ran for president of the United States. He was on the uh, Steve Colbert show. He was on all these, you know, national TV shows. He was a celebrity. He was uh, he's a cult figure. He had his own TV show, his own radio show. He talked about whacking me and doing all this stuff. And in fact, when Zanesville came out, Zanesville was first came out into the news. He did it. He's a singer, too, as you'll find out watching that series. I don't even think it's his voice because I've heard him try to <laughs> sing before to me. I, I think but he. He's, he did a, uh, a video with a little song on it. Uh, there's uh, there's dead tigers in, in Zanesville, and he starts ta- singing a song. And in the, during the song, it shows a guy with a ball cap just like me, resembles me from the back, walking up, putting Terry on his knees and blowing his brains out. 
And then he goes, then he says to all the national all the people saying that Tim Harrison's the only person in Ohio could have went on that property, cut, got those, turn those animals loose, cut those cages, and then killed Terry Thompson right there, assassinated him. Well, that only lasted for about a month. I got my attorneys on a real fast, you know, I'm a police officer with FOP attorneys. So I just called them. They went after him real quick and they changed it. And you can still, it's probably still out there now. It's, they have two police officers now getting him on his knees and shooting him because he says now the local police now. So um, that's the kind of love-hate relationship I have with him. But the one thing is, he told, he used to call me all the time. He told me, he said, Tim, Joe Schweivogel, who he really is, he actually did a lot of special wish stuff. He was a, he was a magician. He did a lot of good stuff. That's why he was he's a confusing person. And then he says, this whack, Joe Exotics is off the wall oh. character. He told me this was like six months before the murder for hire. He said, Tim, he goes, I think Joe Exotics taken over. And I'm thinking, ooh, as a police officer, I'm thinking he's already a narcissist. He's already dangerous. And now Joe Exotics taken over. So uh, I guess he did. Joe Exotic took over. He had some serious problems. But the thing is, though, if you guys would have went to his place, he'd have schmoozed you and made you think. Because you got to remember Shaq, all these celebrities going out there all the time. And he was big, the biggest one, the breeder in the country. And people would come there, do film films. Sugar wouldn't melt in his mouth. But then there's this crazy Joe Exotic guy that shoots at his employees. He would actually shoot his employees. And I know that for a fact from somebody that went undercover there for our group. And uh, he's just he's he was seriously, seriously uh, had some problems. But, yeah, that's Joe. And the murder for hire thing didn't surprise me. But it did surprise me that he went to Florida and he was backing up the FBI guy that he paid undercover. He went to Florida, too, to make sure it was done. That's what scares me. And he's not the worst, guys. When you watch watch his series, just watch on the trailer. My buddy pops up there, uh, you know, the one that's in Florida. He uh, uh, he's he even says it. He goes, "I'm the one that they uh, modeled Scarface or the movie Scarface after." Oh yeah, he, actually, yeah. he cut a guy up in a bathtub. He did for real, and uh, he's the one that uh, Mario. And I've known Mario for years. He's got some problems. These other guys are even worse than Joe. And this was this was Joe. Joe tried to arrange for somebody to uh, kill the person that manages Big Cat Rescue in Florida. Yeah, it's Carol right? Baskin friend of mine yeah. I've worked with yeah. years and on that trailer that makes her look like she's just some like you know she yeah. is she's a pit bull trust me <laughs> uh, uh, as you can tell ask Joe Exotic <laughs> she got she won a million dollar lawsuit against him and then she he's in prison because of her yeah you know so in terms of these you know the exotic I don't know if you call them roadside attractions or you know where you've got somebody yeah. who's owning 20 30 tigers are there often other sort of criminal activities that are associated with a few of them? Just going off what I've, I've known about Joe Exotic in terms of wasn't he involved in money laundering and a few other things? Yeah. Are there often other illegal activities going on? Yes, as we, Joe's a perfect example where he was uh, using tiger parts and doing things. You know, one of the stories, it was a beautiful story in National Geographic magazine uh, in, uh, in December where Sharon Gunyap, who I helped out with the article, she even talks about there was actual stuff. He had tiger teeth and, and things at the jewelry store getting gold put on him so he could sell them. You know, it was just it's just a nefarious world. Most of the time when you're dealing with somebody that deals with animals, they're also got something else going on. And as I was, as a law enforcement officer that teaches on a national basis, I spoke at an uh, interdiction conference years just a few years ago. 
These are interdiction teams that do all the child trafficking, uh, the human trafficking stuff, all those. These are the top guys in the United States because they were running into so many of these traffickers, human traffickers who are involved with the dangerous exotic animal business. And one guy even said, told the story. He said, man, I was in, uh, down in uh, near Nashville and I'm driving along and I made a traffic stop on this old beat up trailer being pulled by a truck. He goes, I go in the back. The guy wanted to see what was in the trailer because I want to see if there's kids in there, right? So they opens up the truck and there's 16 uh, tiger cubs in there. And he calls the prosecutor. Prosecutor has no idea what to do. Now, I'll throw this into you guys. You got some good news now. Michigan State University Law School and myself and uh, a couple other groups are working together to put together a manual so that just like we do as law enforcement for Alzheimer's disease or something like that, we keep it in our bag. So we could pull it out and say, oh, this is how we're supposed to handle an Alzheimer patient. Here's the phone number to call to get somebody here to help me or at least answer the questions. We're getting a manual up for all exotic animals these people run into now. So they know who to call, who does their attorneys speak to, where those animals can go to be held now. Because we've got all kinds of sanctuaries now, guys, because of the elephant in the living room. we got sanctuaries now that there's no breeding, selling, no picture taking. These animals have gone to retire. I love it. I love every bit of it. That's one of the things I'm so proud of from that documentary. But it's so funny because now the law enforcement is the ones that see this stuff on a daily basis, and they have no idea what to do with it. Now we're finishing up this manual. We'll hopefully have it done here within a few months, hopefully. And every law enforcement will have it on PDF, or they'll have it in their bag with them so they can pull it out. Each state has who to contact, and we take it from there. So no animal is going to slip through our fingers anymore. Because a lot of these animals, as you guys know, they're not computer chipped. They're not tattooed. We have no idea. There's no license or tags, just like the, the Sheriff Travis said in the movie. You know, there's nothing on them. We don't know where they come yeah. from or who they belong to. So now well, we just confiscate them. And then we let the uh, sanctuaries hold on to them. If somebody comes and wants them, then we got to, we can find the bad guys out there. But that's not going to happen. We, at least we can rescue these animals out of horrible, horrible conditions. Has the success, I mean, it's been eight years now since the film was released and obviously going into it, I'm sure you had expectations and and hopes of the kind of impact that it would have. And it clearly has. Uh, But does that surprise you at all? Has the reception to the film surprised you in any way? We're now eight years later and we're still talking about it and it's still having an impact on on laws and changing attitudes. So did you did you even dream that it was going to be as successful? No. In fact, it's funny you said that because I did Nat Animal Planet shows. I felt like I needed to take a shower after doing every one of them because they cut them up and they make you look like Tarzan. And it's just like a bunch of garbage. So I quit doing media totally. I didn't do any talk to anybody, interviews, didn't do anything. I was done. And my wife will tell you, I, I was absolutely done. I was, it was very popular. I was on Wild Rescues and all these different series doing things. And I'm thinking, man, this ain't right. I just don't feel good doing this. I don't want to embarrass my grandkids, you know? Ended up, uh, Mike came to me. He was filming a film in Poland and he was, he had my books. I don't know who he was. So he read these books. He just picked them up and he read them on the plane flight over there. And he started calling me, calling me. And I kept turning him down. I don't want to do anything. He says, no, you'll be my first documentary. Please let's do this. I am an artist. I'm going to make it so that you're going to be very proud. I go, I have not, I've heard that so many times, I hear it every almost every month now. Somebody wants to do a series with me. I don't want to do it. It's not going to happen because every time we get down to signing a contract, they want me to take my shirt off. They want me to wrestle something, and it's not going to happen. It's true. It's just it's garbage TV. It's called animal harassment TV is what it's called. So he said, give me six months. I said, okay. So he, 
rode in a uh, police cruiser with me. He went out on some calls. It was actually a slow time for me. He took that little, that whatever he filmed in that six month period, made a 45 minute or so, like a little mini documentary, took it to Silver Docks uh, International Film Festivals in Maryland, and he won. Uh -huh. He won the ACE Award. So he got the money to pay, to pay for the documentary to be made. He calls me and I hadn't, I hadn't heard from him for like four months. And he calls me and says, hey, we got it. We got the money. And I'm like, okay, who is this? Right. Oh. And he goes, no, it's Mike, the guy we did. For oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, we got the money for the documentary. I ain't, I ain't even seen that little documentary made. I ain't seen anything yet. So I'm going, oh, wow. I wonder what it looks like. He says, I'm coming back. I'll show it to you. Comes back. He shows it to me. And I, tears just welled up in my eyes. Yeah. I thought, we got, some, we got a combination here. We got something good going here. And I ain't going to mess it yeah. up. And it, it worked. And yeah. I was not ready for the impact. Because I was still in my mind how many people yeah. just did not like me from the animal industry because they kept thinking you're trying to stop them from education is dragging a tiger cub out. That was education. That was conservation. Still is across the United States. And you know, pay for play, VIP parties. This has nothing to do with conservation. When I went over to Nepal and India with the tiger projects over there, I asked them, I started talking about, you know, hey, at the Columbus Zoo, they have these pay to play things where people get their pictures taken. I said, you guys get anything from that? And they go, no, why would that have anything to do with the tigers here in Nepal? You know, and I started looking at them going, hey, they're right. What would that, that has nothing to do with that. That's just people getting uh, quick pleasure out of getting their picture taken and then somebody getting wealthy off of it. So I wasn't ready for the reaction that people had. There was, a, at first there was a lot of anger from the animal industry that came after us. People were putting nooses on my car. They were going after Mike. A lot of try to shut down our, our websites. They try to shut down our, you know, try yeah. to sell the animals. And they're wow. very powerful. They got all the Congress people. They got everything on their side. Now it's to the point now, I can't tell you what's coming out this year. But I'll just say another one's, another something's coming out that's going to be bigger than the last one. Wow. So uh, it's coming out. I got a new book coming out, too, called White Magic, Curse of the White Tiger. It's coming out, too, uh, this summer. That you guys are going to blow you away. It's going to blow you away. I can tell you now, Tim, that, um, Harry can confirm that I'm not just saying this because you're you're talking to us, but when we, I've always said to Harry that your movie is my favourite animal wildlife documentary that I've ever seen, and even when I used to be, I used to be a teacher before I got into animal welfare, and I used to when it came out, I used to use it with my pupils over here in the UK about only you know the, we had a um, primate industry over in the UK. Uh, going on when I was doing it and um, it made such an impact on them <laughs> obviously I couldn't show them they were like seven eight year olds couldn't show them all parts of the movie um, yeah. but it, it had it made such an impact on me and all these pupils that I forced to learn about animals because uh, I, I love them so I, I kind of I just wanted to share that with you that it, it made such a huge impact on me and as I say uh, hence why I've I'm you know I've been looking forward to this for such a long time now because is such an amazing documentary. Um, what I'm really interested in, Tim, as well, is something that I cannot get my head around, is what do one of the auctions look like, if you don't mind me asking? Because we just do not have them here in the UK. I don't know if you have them in Portugal, Harry. No, nothing like that. I, I just can't even understand. What, what does one look like, Tim? Talk us through it. Yeah, it's it's kind of in a... Uh, do you guys have like a flea market over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flea market kind of stuff. And every once in a while, they'll do an auction. If the people haven't haven't bought everything at the flea market, mm. they'll have like a little auction underneath a um, in a building or something. And people will bring some of their stuff in and auction it off to whoever wants to take it home. Basically, uh, I don't know if you know anything much about the Amish. Well, the Amish over here, yeah, Amish are well known for uh, owning the uh, puppy mills. 
to the okay. Amish people. This is where my style of who I am helps out because I'm able to deal with the Amish because to them, an animal is no different. A horse is no different than a wrench. It's just a, it's just property. It's just uh, something to use. The Amish is where we had the auctions in their areas. Now, the Native Americans, we have the Native American Indian reservations. It's kind of like what an Amish town is like. The police really don't go in there. They have their own laws. They do their own thing. Now, to tell you, to kind of narrow it down, you got to start thinking this. Okay, this is a, a closed society, a closed little town of Mount Hope, Ohio. Now, the sheriff deputies will stay outside the, on the perimeter of the town, but they don't go in. I'll, I'll talk to you in a minute about that. They stay out of that because they have their own little laws that take care of their own religion and they take care of their own people. So going into this atmosphere, we went in there and I kept telling people that the Amish are auctioning off the zoo babies. You see zoo babies, but you don't see zoo teenagers, right? You, they disappear. Nobody knows where they go. And when you go to the auctions, there they are. And they have the zoo personnel with their shirts on, auction them off to anybody in the crowd who wants them. Now, the people in the crowd, you go into a barn, you go in, you pay your money to the Amish guy at the front. You walk through and there's a bunch of barns. There's nothing fancy. You go in, you go in the first barn, it'd be birds, parrots, things like that. You go in the next one, a lot of primates. You go in the next one, they got, they got you know bears and tiger cubs. They got elephants. They got giraffes. They got anything you want. These are being sold to the general public now. There's nobody there that's from buying them from another zoo. These people are strictly police officers, school teachers, doctors. They're not stupid people. There is some, a few, you get a few in there, you know, rednecks in there, but most of them are just regular people coming to this auction and wanting to buy something because they saw it on TV. And they'll tell you that. So the building is packed. Every barn is packed to the brim. So we go in, I go into the, the barn where they're auctioning, starting to auction off, you know, foxes, wolves, bears, cats, and they're all cubs. So you're in a crowd and you're watching this and the, the director and the producer from, uh, Inside Edition, Larry Posner was with us when we first went in there before he brought an undercover camera and he just wanted to go get the feel of it. He came in with me. We're sitting in the crowd now. And this lady's got this big purse next to him. And she goes, oh, you're from New York. And he goes, uh, yeah, I'm from New York. Yeah. And she goes, let me show you my friend. And she opens up her purse and this huge spider monkey comes out of the purse like an alien. Oh and crawls up in his lap. He now craps his pants. I mean, and that's not the only one. These other people with monkeys on their shoulders. You know, all kinds of stuff, all in the crowd. And it's, it's so surrealistic. It's, it's hard to explain unless you see it. But Larry about flipped. He goes, we got to get out. I got to go get my undercover camera. It's, it's going to be in his glasses. I got to go. We got to get in this. This is amazing. So we run out and get him all geared up. We come back in and it's just off the wall. It's so bizarre. And like the best quote is from my partner, Russ Muntz, the police officer says, you know, the only thing would be, you know, even more bizarre here is if they sold a human baby. And it was that weird that they were just dragging these things out as fast as they could. When you see the uh, Inside Edition piece, you'll see them stacking black leopard cubs on top of each other. A little cages. Uh, as fast as they can bring them out, leopard cubs. And you hear the Amish, Amish are the ones at auction. The uh, zoos and the uh, breeders bring them in. The auction auctioneers are the Amish people. They get a taste of it. They, they get their uh, money from it. They're done with these animals because they can't use them anymore for uh, getting your picture taken with them because they're getting too big now. They have what they call an expiration date. These cats have expiration dates. These bears have expiration yeah. dates. When you reach a certain size, they'll bite the snot out of it. So uh, they can't use them in public anymore. 
So they have to get rid of them. So they sell them off of these auctions. And that's the same with the reptile. You guys saw the reptile auction. They sell cobras in deli cups like you get potato salad. People just, you saw the mass of people in that reptile auction. You can't even walk through the crowd. There's so many people. And they're taking out the most deadliest venomous snakes on the planet, walking out with them, and there's no anti-venom for them. So now you see why the emergency room doctors and the pediatric physicians are jumping on my side because they're getting this crap and they have no box to check. You know, we're getting these incidents coming in. We don't know what ha what's happening. So, well, I fill that gap in for them. When people say I see a black leopard, uh, a black leopard walking through the woods in Ohio or in uh, Pennsylvania, I show them that inside edition piece. What do you think, guys? There was 13 of them stacked on top of each other. That's just one auction. Imagine when they get to a certain size, you yeah. can't handle them anymore. It's born free. They got no place else to take them because they're not going to take them back. The people sell them to you. The zoo don't want nothing to do with them. So they turn them loose. That's what happened to the, as you saw in the film with the uh, pythons. You know, they people turn the pythons loose. We knew that for years. Nobody listened to us. So it was a perfect example of miseducation over here, misdirection uh, uh, of people telling conservation, this is conservation, conservation. What you're doing is causing the biggest eco disaster in the Everglades ever had because you're telling them by you owning a python, you're educating the public and it's going to help the pythons in the wild, which has nothing to do with that. You end up destroying the Everglades. You know, I, I'm sorry I get on my soapbox, but it's just, I hate seeing those animals shot. And I'll tell you guys, when this showed at San Francisco, there was a film festival in San Francisco. We, we won the one that was over there called the London United one. And it was kind of wild because when people started seeing all these things and seeing what's going on, we, we showed that, you know, this woman gets up right, when, right after the snake is shot. She runs out into the lobby and we go out there for a second. I said, are you okay, ma'am? She goes, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd cry over a snake. She goes, I am, I am emotionally shot over this. I said, well, you may, you may want to stay out here. I said, it's going to get a little <laughs> I warned you. I said, stay out here. I'll tell you when you want to go back in. <laughs> but that's what I wanted to reach. Mike Weber, the director and the filmmaker, he made people care about a snake. Yeah. So you can't get any better than that, you know? Completely right. When you talk about the auctions, I mean, just to put it into some kind of context, how many of these things, how, how many of these auctions take place uh, every month? Is it a regular thing? Because obviously then we're talking about the scale, you know, the number of animals there. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, back then when that was done, when the movie was done, there was four big auctions there at Mount Hope, Ohio every year. Every year. And they were huge. Every year, four. Now, that's just Mount Hope. In Ohio, we had probably 20 auctions going, but that was the biggest oh. one. We had a little auction here, a little auction here. And then we had, as you saw in the with the Pennsylvania thing with the reptiles, that goes on every every month. You try to touch the reptile industry, you're going to have the biggest backlash you'll ever have in your life because these people are off the wall. The funny part about the reptile auctions is that people will go there and buy something they have no idea what it is and bring it home. And they're yeah. told, well, here's a perfect example. Um, I don't want to get too too off the wall for yeah. your listeners because it's, it's hard for people to phantom what I'm yeah, going to say. You go as off the wall as you want. We have a snake over here called a coral snake. Red to yellow, kill a fellow. Red to black, venom black. That's the color code. Okay, I don't know if you guys know much about them, but they're, they're neurotoxic, just like a cobra. Well, this guy, I honestly believe, I'm going to hopefully believe 
the person selling the snake was just some yoho that got it from somewhere else. And it was in sickly, it wasn't healthy. Well, the woman's son bought it at an auction down at the Montgomery County Fair. She brings it home, the son, the son can't feed it because that guy had sold it to him, said you have to feed it pinkies, little pinky mice. All right, so the snake's not eating, it's lethargic, it's laying there. So she tries, she reads something on the, online, says you're supposed to force feed them by pushing the pinky mice down its throat, right? With your, with, oh your, with your finger. Oh my God. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so she's doing this. Now, she lives in my area as a police officer. She happens to be a well-known physician. She's very intelligent. She calls me to the house because I knew the family. And she goes, hey, can you come over the snake we just bought tonight eating? Can you check this out? Now, I haven't started to really get out and educate the public yet. I was just rescuing at that time. So I get in there. I look down. As soon as I see the snake laying, it's just laying there. It's like sick like that. And she's looking at her finger. She goes, look at all these scrapes I got on my finger. It's got some pointy little teeth. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked at first. But I said, I, I don't want to stun you too much. That's a coral snake. And she goes, what's that? It's so pretty. I said, let me show you. So I got on a computer and I showed her coral snake, red to yellow, kill a fellow. And she goes, oh, he told us that was a scarlet king snake. I said, no, red to black, venom black. That's not, that's red to yellow. And she's like, holy crap. And she's had scraped her finger. She said she was having numbness in her arm because he was just, he wasn't chewing any venom into her because he was sickly, thank goodness. But it was enough to just cause her to have numbness in her hand and her arm. So that, I went back and I immediately, immediately went to the Montgomery County Sheriff, all the different emergency rooms and everything else. Hey, guys, be aware. Here, here's one right here. Because one thing, they don't eat peaky mice, they eat other snakes. So that's why it was lethargic. They were trying to force pinky mice down its throat, and they're supposed to eat other snakes. So that's why it was sickly. So I got it healthy again. I took it to a, a rescue facility. But it was so bizarre. I went to all the different hospitals and brought that snake with me and said this was what was sold right across at the fairgrounds over here. Wow. How many of these snakes, if you if you had to estimate, because there's, there's really no way of knowing. No, there's no way. Um, but be it the snakes or other reptiles or, or other animals, you said at the auctions there's a lot of cubs and babies that are auctioned off from from the zoos because they're not wanted and they're not required. So what proportion of these animals would you say are bred in the United States yeah. and what proportion are from overseas? Yeah, that's a very good question because years ago, I'm going to say within my lifetime, back when I was a teenager, I could tell you 90% was being brought from overseas because then zoos would get their zoo surplus. They call them zoo surplus. Then it started getting out to the general public. Nobody was buying them back then. They just had to put them down or you know be done with them. But as time went on, the breeding started. The white tigers are, is a perfect example of what went on in the United States of America. When they came over in 1960, all of a sudden they, they went from the zoos to the Cincinnati Zoo, which was just down the road from where I live. They went from the National Zoo to the Cincinnati Zoo. And guess where they went from the Cincinnati Zoo to Siegfried and Roy? Two magicians, yeah. and they overbred them like crazy. Every year, twice a year, you would have, we got six cubs laying out here, white tiger cubs, and they'd be laying on them for promotional purposes. Then when you go count the cubs or count the tigers at their facility, oh, there's only six. Wait a minute, they had 12 this year. Next year, they had another 12. Then you start going to the auctions. You're going, holy crap. And that's what my book talks about, how they came from the Cincinnati Zoo, where I grew up, from the Cincinnati Zoo to magicians, to the general public, out to the auctions, to the people got in people's backyards, to me capturing and rescuing two white tigers in a backyard in Ashland, Ohio, the first full circle. Any animal 
that happens to be shown on TV, and this is the facts, absolute facts. I would quit all my, my every time I have on this because I've proven it already, is that any animal that is shown on Animal Planet or Discovery uh, is highlighted on there will be for sale within months after it. And I even show it during my PowerPoint presentations where I take a newspaper article out of our local newspaper, my little town, where it says, spider monkeys, and it says right underneath there are big words, as seen on TV. <laughs> you can't get any better than that. And uh, when you go to auctions, they'll say, just like the ones you saw on Animal Planet, there they are. And it's like, holy crap. And I'll tell you one more quick story to, to connect that dots, to connect those together. The woman you saw that spoke about, about Lambert being on the, on the interstate, the road there, and attacking yeah. her car. Mike's got footage uh, in the car interviewing her. And she turns around, she says to me, and she goes, you know something? What really upset me was not that lion trying to pull my bumper off. She goes, my daughter in the back seat, eight years old, was trying to get out of the car to pet the lion like Steve Irwin. Exact quote. <laughs> and I looked at her, I said, do you know who I am? And she goes, no. I said, that's what I've been preaching for the last 10 years, 20 years. I said, you just put it right out there for me. The only reason we put and didn't put it into film is because we weren't going after anybody. We just wanted to show you what the world was like. You make your own decision out of it. Now, things may be different as time goes on, but right there, that's what uh, that's what we want to show. And look what these animals have to go through. You know. what, during your work, Tim, do you, how easy do you find it? I know you've talked about education a lot, um, and it sounds like you work with both the consumer and also the people that I know, I know the, the people that are running the park are almost the consumers as well in some respects, aren't they? But uh, yes. the people that uh, are, let's say, breeding the animals compared to the people that maybe are consuming by going to these roadside parks or roadside safari parks. Because if it was up to, because when you've got a kid and you want something to do with them and you think, oh, I'll go show them a tiger, there's this, this person down the road's got 30 tigers or how, how difficult is it to, even though you can, give people all the facts in the world when it comes to them maybe either purchasing a tiger cub or how how difficult is it to get that message across when I can imagine it's so alluring to want to buy one of these animals? Yeah, it's, it's difficult at times, but I've learned techniques over the years that's helped me quite a bit. One of the things I do is, uh, this is a perfect example, I went out to Seattle, for the opening of the film out there. I had had some of the cats that we've rescued went out to a facility out there, a fantastic facility. Uh, Wildcat Ridge uh, Sanctuary out there. And we were out there, they were promoting, it took me to dinner. Everybody's sitting, we're talking, and they had all these really great people, advocates and activists. And they're all talking about what they're going to do and doing these things. And I'm sitting there for a second, I'm looking over my shoulder in the whole restaurant, it's a real fancy restaurant, for all listening to the conversation. So I stood up and I said, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I said, no one interrupt your dinner. I noticed everybody's looking over here. You're probably wondering what the heck we're we talking about. And they go, yeah. And I, I said, let me tell you. So I told him a little story, and I told him about a little bit about the, the film and told him a little bit about what's going on, and they were eating this up. And then I sat back down, and everybody clapped at the restaurant. <laughs> I sat down, and everybody, I said, ladies and gentlemen, stand here. You're some of the best advocates in the country and the world. Some of them are from England, too. And I said, listen to me. We already understand this. We're preaching to the, to the choir. These are the people that are on the fence. These are the ones we need to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> when you have an opportunity, you talk to anybody, you talk to them about it, but you don't preach. I don't preach. I mm. try to educate without letting them know they're being educated. When they walk away, they're telling me stuff. You know, you, you know, I want to tell people this. There's something about that. 
And that's how you do it. And then, then I have to throw in, books do work. I teasingly, I said once before on NPR radio, I'm sitting there and I'm talking. I said, I tell everybody, you know, I said, best, best way to, to get people the information. I said, yeah, I, I write books. I write books for people who, who think. And I said, and I do, uh, I do uh, uh, documentaries for the rest of us. I said, I'm one of them. I'd rather watch a documentary. <laughs> 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 I got chewed out for that. I, the uh, director and everybody else for the film. I said, no, I said, I'm one of those guys. I said, but the books are what really got the movie done. It moves somebody's mind. And not, they're not all they are storybooks. And I consider them therapy. When I did them, the lady, the publisher came to me, said, put your stories down. I can't believe this stuff. I've seen you doing this stuff. Please put something down. I put it down. And you can see how I evolved from 2001 on the cover where they put a snake over my shoulder with a jungle yeah. hat. Yeah. Until we get into the second book was my book. You know, and that's a tiger we took off the streets of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, so to me, you know, I want to make sure that people understand that this is going on. A lot of times they don't understand this is going on. They have no idea this is going on. This is what I deal with. And I always finish every program I do, especially with colleges and high schools. I said, don't believe a word I just told you all. Don't believe a word I said. Go out and investigate it yourselves. And I get the most wildest emails. Oh, my God, it's worse than you ever said. You know, oh my God, now we got investigators now. You got people that hate me, they start investigating and they go, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought it was. And just remember one thing, guys. You saw the documentary with Denise and Jose Flores. They had big cats that they had actually taken away from a very horrible man, Sam Mazzola, which is a whole different story. And he, they brought him and they got him in their backyard and they're trying to protect him and take care of him. I got called in because nobody from any of the organizations were coming to help her when it came to Nora, the tiger you're going to see, had a deer bone caught in her molars. It was piercing her jaw. Couldn't get it out. So I got called there to help her with that. She goes, and all the time she's chewing me out, and Jose, her husband, will not talk to me because they were people that worked on the in that world. They were part of that world, and I was the devil. So I get in there, and I'm walking past him. I said, well, where's the cat at? And she goes, well, down here. And I got my video camera out because I thought we we're going to have to do some dental work, too. I mean, literally. <laughs> so I go and I, I get this video camera. I'm laying down next to the cage and I'm flicking Nora's whiskers. And you can see the bone sticking out. I'm flicking her whiskers to get her to open her mouth. And she's laying there. She be careful. She's got claws. I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm laying her, flicking her whiskers. She opens her mouth. And I get a great shot where the uh, bone was. In the process of doing that, I can't tell you what happened. Let's just say the bone somehow popped out of her mouth. Okay, <laughs> it, was, it came out right. Yeah, she needed it. Right Magic. Up and, yeah, in doing this, uh, we look at her and she has broken canine, which most of them in captivity do. And I go, she needs some dental work done. And she, go, I'll be here next week with my team. And she's looking at me. She goes, "You really coming back?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll be back with the whole team. We'll come back here and we'll do surgery in the back." I said, "A couple of the other cats look like they need surgery too. We'll take care of them." She's like shaking her head. She goes, you're not the biggest asshole. Everybody told me you were. And I told her, I said, well, you haven't got yet. <laughs> I should have that tattooed across my chest. I'm not the biggest asshole you all thought I was. Because I have the people that were the bad, some of the baddest dudes and women on the planet that were the bad guys are on my team now. You don't, yeah. I don't blame these people. I don't go after them. I don't, you know, call them all kinds of names. I'm just doing my thing. And, and if my thing just happens to be what's right at this point in time, and that's where I feel comfortable at, because I don't, there's no, I don't judge anybody because, you know, there's no way to judge them. 
The only people in the black hats are the breeders, the people that breed them and actually know what they're doing is wrong. And they sell these animals to these people and tell them, you know, hey, if you get them declawed, they'll never harm you. If you do this, you do this, you should grind down the teeth. Or the pythons, you only feed them like once every couple months, it'll keep them smaller. We just had an alligator took out of a, a basement here in, in Ohio. He was 25 years old. And he's only five foot long. These are the things where I tell people, you know, they had no idea. And I gently bring them into this world. Well, follow me. I'll show you some stuff. And I'll talk yeah. to you. I'll tell you some stories. And it opens their minds up. And it works, too. I, I don't want to talk to you guys' ears off, but it does work. It's gentle. It's not fast, but it works. I think it's the only thing that does work. I mean, there's been so many years in the animal welfare sector, as as you well know, there's been so many adversarial conversations. It's it's them and us. They're the bad guys and, and we're the good guys. Yes. And it's gotten us nowhere. You know, there's the occasional victory. It's maybe sparked a fire somewhere that's led to something else. But, but that adversarial attitude is never successful. It just entrenches people into what they already believe. And even if they were going to come to your side, you've, you've probably pissed them off so much that you've lost that chance anyway. So what you're talking about here is, is really the only way yeah. forward. And there's got to be an opportunity to meet them somewhere so that you're, you're not the adversary anymore. Uh, and you're not going to like everything they say, and they're not going to like everything that you say, but, but you can't really do anything without listening to each other. So, uh, I mean, that's just such an important message. So uh, thanks Thanks for that, Tim, because it's really, really vital for the work that we do. Absolutely. That's what we all need to walk from. And that's why I get a lot of young people coming up and you're getting these ideas now. Hey, what's the good of yelling at this person when this person, you both love the animal, but you love it on a different level. And I, you have to bring, we have to get together on this. Okay, we love this animal, but do you really think, Terry, that's this, this cat's happy here? You know, are you happy shoveling the crap out of the cage now you can't play with it anymore it's not a pet you know and we both love the animal when i walked up to terry's wife in that movie and she actually had a gun because everybody down here has a gun but we walk up and to get past her she's guarding her husband i respected that see it might kind of cut some of that out because we didn't want that in the film but i actually told her i said i love you i love that you're protecting your husband and the lions this is yeah. great i said you're my kind of person that's how you do it. And I is. I did respect them. And they're my buddies forever. Terry was the biggest cheerleader for me. Uh, Denise and Jose are the biggest cheerleaders for me. Every person I've worked with over the years, they're the biggest cheerleaders. They'll never repeat, never repeat again, because they know we're, we're a big sister and brotherhood here of people that love animals, but we love them now correctly. I got a new book that I'm working on. Because how to love animals by leaving them the hell alone. That's <laughs> that's it. That's how you love an animal is by watching it do what it's supposed to do, and not interrupt its life. Absolutely, it basically wow. sums everything up. That uh, that book title. It does. Doesn't it? <laughs> I learned a lot. I've been I've been able to be a uh, work with sharks and whales and stuff with people that are one of the one of the greatest two guys that I ever met. That taught me a lot. Howard Hall and Bob Cranston, God rest his soul, he passed a couple years ago. But they were underwater filmmakers. They do a lot of things you see uh, on uh, IMAX, those shows you see, they're all over the world. He's amazing. But I was at the beginning when they were just starting to get, get going. They would go, we'd get in the water for a couple of days on a reef area and not bother anything and just become part of the reef. 
Then yeah. the camera comes down. Then the things come down. And they, and they kept saying, how does he get those shots of those marble rays all over the camera, yeah. all over? Because there's no humans in the, in, the, in, those, in the shows at that time. It was all animals. Yeah. And they would come over and they're all over the place. It was wild because we were part of the, we were part of the reef. And that's what I took from there. When I went to Africa with these other places, I became part of the environment, not an obnoxious outsider. They got used to you. Yeah. Like, you see some of the greatest photographers. I love some of the stuff where you'll see a photographer doing cheetahs and he's mm -hmm. there for like a year. And the cheetahs come over and sit down next to him. He can't even take a picture of him. They're sitting next to him. He doesn't pet them. He's just part of the environment. I don't reach out and touch. You know how hard it is not to reach out and touch a manta ray or, a, or a, even yeah. a great white going by. You just want to touch it. But then you realize in your mind, my hand could have something on there that could bother that animal. You know, I might have something on me. I don't want to, I don't want that animal to think he's a pet either to come, keep coming back and forth. That's the worst you can do, yeah. you know? So to me, that opened my eyes up being with true conservationists, true people that understand animals and were not obnoxious outsiders. That's the big thing to me. You're going to get more of an experience by sitting down mm. and letting the, letting the things come out, see what you are, yeah. watch, be a part of the, like I say, part of the environment. And see yeah. that, and that oh, it's it's amazing when it happens that way. And it does. It happens more that way than you think. But people don't want to, you know, take the time. You know, they want to hurry up and catch everything because that's what they're taught on TV. Catch it, pick it up, show off with it, exhibit it, you know, exploit it, and then throw it down, right? No, no, no. and it doesn't work that way. It absolutely doesn't. I mean, a lot of the work that I've done, less with wildlife and more with stray animals, dogs and cats. But watching those animals, if you're going to go into a situation where you have to catch these animals, yeah, you can run down the road and chase after them, whistle after them, things like that. Or you can do exactly what you said. You could spend some time sitting there and watching them and, and yep. learning about them. And actually, there's something really incredible about that. I mean, people think about watching wildlife and having to go to Africa or somewhere else. And, and people pay a fortune to go on safari so that they can see a lion in the wild or something like that. But you look anywhere. You're in the United States. There's so much wildlife there. You really don't have to go very far to see it. And if you just spend a little time and let it approach you, you get to see these documentaries play out right in front of you, whether it's a, a lion or a tiger or a bear or a dog or a cat. It's, it's right there in front of you if you just take the time to see it. Absolutely. And that's the thing, too, is nobody's teaching that in educational facilities right now. You know, it's, there's a point where you need, because I still go into some of these schools, and they're still using uh, Steve Irwin, some of his stuff where he's jumping on the back of uh, manatees and all this crazy stuff. And I'm going, what the heck is this all about, right? And, I, and wrestling everything. And I'm thinking, hold on a second. Hold on, guys. You don't jump on everything. You don't have to pick everything up. You don't have to you know, swing it by its tail and say, danger, danger, danger. The only danger is what you're doing to the animal. So when I go in there, that's not educational. I told him, I said, let me show you some of the stuff the BBC has done. Let me show you some of the stuff where they take time and actually sit there and become part of the environment. Because mm -hmm. some of the stuff just blows my mind, you know, especially with the snow leopard stuff that they did on the side of that mountain. I think it was yeah. planted, whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, my gosh. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. And that's nothing. There's no baiting. There's no, <laughs> there's no sitting up. Mm -hmm. It's not faked. This is real. And that's yeah. why they're so popular. Absolutely. You get to see a side of the animal that you've never seen before. And and that took months, months and months to capture that footage. Something that's on screen for, for three minutes and somebody was there for half a year getting that. And there's no shortcuts to that. Now, 
you you've seen so many changes you you've said you've been in this for a long time and you've seen a lot of changes and you've been instrumental in in some of them so where do you see it going now what's your what's your hope for how you see things going now i think uh, i i feel i'm feeling optimistic if you'd asked me this before the elephant in the living room was made i would tell you it's going to hell <laughs> it's just it's, i'm banging my head against the wall nothing's happening there's, I'm seeing animals die. Now, with uh, films like Blackfish, documentaries like Blackfish, The Cove, all these groups like you guys out there doing your thing, everybody just out there doing it, talking about it now. And they're talking about it more humanely instead of being the ones just screaming at people like in the past. You know, it's it looks very optimistic to me. I honestly believe if the Big Cat Public Safety Act gets through the House and then we get into the, uh, the uh, Congress, I really believe that's going to be a, a huge game changer when wow. it comes to the United States of America. Because, you know, China pointed right back at us. I think it was last CITES thing they talked about, yeah. you know, we were going after them about breeding tigers and, yeah. you know, doing the body parts and all that stuff. They pointed yeah. their finger right back yeah. at the United States and said, you guys are worse than we are. You got more tigers. You got Joe Exotic. You got all this crazy stuff. So there's nothing that we can't argue with until we clean our mess up. So I think yeah. that opened a lot of people's eyes. I think we're going within... I'm 63. I, within my lifetime, I feel there's not going to be any more big cats in private homes anymore. That would be an amazing thing. Yeah. The zoos are cleaning their acts up. Uh, people are kind of paying more attention. They're questioning. The average public is questioning more about this instead of just allowing it to happen. Mm. And I believe we it's going to be good for uh, good in the future for uh, these dangerous, wild, exotic animals. You know, because people, I'm not just talking about big cats. I believe it's going to fall domino effect with primates and snakes and everything else too but it's yeah. uh, you got to get one you got to get it passed to get one going and then it just takes it from there you know mindset of the uh, public is there they've evolved and uh, it took me a while to evolve and i understand that that's why I'm, i don't yell at anybody but once it hits oh my gosh guys once it hits in somebody's head you see the light go on man it's just a warm feeling goes over you they'll hug you They'll call you and say, oh, my gosh, Tim, I just it just hit me or I got it. It's I, I understand what you were saying now. And when that opens up when that world opens up and they get that feeling, I'm never going to a circus again. I'm never doing this again. I'm, I pay attention to this. We're on the same boat. We're here to help out. You know, but I, one of my things I like to do, which is a little bit cruel, I will take those people sometimes out to where those, those let's say a tiger is in, a, in a corn crib or a bear and stand them right there in front of that. And have them, I said, look, look at your Nora. Look at Nora. What do you think? And so I'd say to them, and they look up at me and they get tears in their eyes. I said, what do you think? You think Nora should live there? And they look at me and they go, no. I said, okay, what do you want to do? I'm here, anything you want. What do you want to do? If you want to make the cage better, I've come in and made cages better for people. The animal is first because they're a prisoner. The animal's first. I will make everything better for them. Get a veterinarian care for them. People used to think I was enabling people over the years. Oh, you're just enabling people. And I found out, no, you're not. The animal needs help. I'm taking care of the animal first. My team of cops, firemen, and paramedics, and all of us, we're going to go take care of that animal. We're going to build a cage. We're going to make it safer. We're going to do the best we can with what we have. And then we'll make the decision after that what to do with it. My favorite thing, it's kind of sad. When Big Russ Clear, the big muscular guy that's in the film, yeah. he was a hell's angel. San Bernardino, California, Hell's Angel, enforcer, killed people with his hands. He went to prison. He found God in prison. He became one of those power guys, you know, the power teams you see on the 
he used to be on Jay Leno's show every once in a while. You know, they come out the Christian power team, break the handcuffs and do all this stuff. Well, he and I ran in each other years before and we became friends. Great guy, hard worker, biggest heart on the planet. Well, we got a little scene with him. We've never used it because we promised him we were going to keep it. We, he didn't know he was, we still had the camera rolling. He went over to Lambert. He leans up to the cage. It's after he helped weld it and we got him in the cage. He leans over and he goes, hey, he goes, hey, buddy, he goes, he goes, I don't know why you're, what you're doing in here. He goes, I know why they put me in a cage, but you've done nothing wrong. Hmm. So that to me, with tears, tears running down his face, yeah. he goes, you've done nothing wrong. This is not right. Hmm. And to hear it from somebody like him, and that to me is, those are the things hmm. people need to hear. Wow. Yeah. Tim, that's amazing, first of all. <laughs> that's, I'm yeah. sure Harry is about to say exactly the same thing. Where can people, you know, people want to check out some of your work, you know, look up your books, try and look out for these the new books that I'm sure I'll be looking out for as well, Tim. How's the best way to connect with you, keep up to date with your amazing work? Well, probably to help us out with outreach for animals because we don't keep animals, so we don't get real donations a lot of times. and We don't really push for donations because we're too busy. We're a bunch of basically a bunch of cops environment that are we go out there when you get a call to go. We don't sit around the computer. But uh, we do have a website, Outreach for Animals website, which you can go to and pick up the books and you can pick up a DVD. And I would tell people to pick up the, the elephant in the living room there because it goes back to us so we can actually do it. If you buy it from Amazon and the rest of it, it just goes back to the production company. And they donated uh, 3000 to us right now to be able to uh, – get some money uh, to help us continue rescuing animals. Because it cost about $3,000 to move a big cat to another state, in the United States of America, you gotta do surgery. Because every cat needs surgery, they need, they need to have a, you know, get a, a physicals. And we have to uh, work with, uh, you know, the gas and the buildings and feeding the people to help and get everybody there. It's close to 3,000 for every animal. We, it, it's, it's expensive work. Most of it comes out of my own pocket or our own pockets. Uh, but we'd like to do, if you can do that, go to that. But also, too, if they want to see what I do, there's another site that we have up called Human Animal Advocate, in a row, lowercase, humananimaladvocate.com. It's a site we just started, my wife and I started, for people to go to and actually see what I do so that they can, I can help them out or get the information. Now, I've been doing a lot with a lot of states and a lot of production teams and everything else, getting them the information they need to get to do the proper stuff. So that's probably the best way to do it. And if you have anything or if you know anything, I know this is probably going to play over in Europe, but if you know anybody that's over there, I've got, I've got people over there. Not just my son, but we know people over there that if you need anything, anything comes up. My email is Tim Harrison, lowercase, Tim Harrison, lowercase, 2001 at gmail.com. We have a phone number of 937 Four three six zero seven two seven, and you can contact us anytime. Please do not turn anything loose. Please, whatever you do, if you have something in your home that you feel is dangerous, get in contact with us. We have connections, and we will safely remove that. It'll be totally confidential. No reason for anybody else to know it. But I want to make sure that they're safe, the humans safe, and the animals safe, and that's where it should be. Absolutely. And we're going to put up all those links in the description of the podcast as well so that people are going to be able to click directly on them and buy any of those things and check out your website and buy the DVD and everything else and support you in any way that they can.
I appreciate that. I got one more statement I have to say, because this is kind of a joking statement, but it's still something that, that everybody seems to remember. You know, you can buy a Cobra, but you can't buy common sense. <laughs> I like it. That's a T-shirt, yeah. that, Tim. That is yeah. a T-shirt. Yeah. It really is. It's a T-shirt <laughs> and a baseball cap and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I yeah, like it's it. perfect. Wow. After speaking with Tim, Matt and I took everything he said and, of course, immediately went out and bought a tiger. Having that tiger in our house was literally everything that we thought it could be, and the 15 minutes before it attacked and killed Matt was truly beautiful. Being that close to a tiger, bonding with it, and having that kind of relationship was something really special for me. And while I can't speak for Matt, I like to think that his screaming and soiling himself in those final seconds meant that he felt exactly the same way. But seriously, speaking with Tim was a real privilege. We were so incredibly lucky to have the opportunity as Tim is about to undergo some major surgery. So we really can't thank him enough for taking the time to speak with us, knowing what he was having to deal with. Matt and I wish Tim the very best for a speedy recovery and urge all of you listening to visit the Elephant in the Living Room website, the Outreach for Animals website, and support the work that Tim and his colleagues are doing. All the links can be found in the description of this podcast. We hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy, and hope that you join us again for the next Animal Chat. And if you don't, well, we're just going to imagine that you are anyway. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.